Well, again, I hope this is a day that we are saying to each other Merry Christmas over and over and over again in light of what it entails, what it involves, what it stands for, those very words, Merry Christmas. It is a joy to be here together on the Lord's Day as God's people on this Christmas Eve morning. And I do hope that being here together this morning, you're already enjoying this sense of anticipation as we celebrate uh, the birth of our Savior and wonder as we marvel at the glories and the truths of the incarnation and joy as we celebrate even what the Lord's birth means, what it meant, what it signifies, uh, what it accomplished. Now, now, if you're new here or just visiting this morning, I do want to again say welcome. Welcome here to Indian Hills. Glad you're here on Christmas Eve morning. I know I speak on all of us uh, be, on behalf of everybody here at Indian Hills that we're glad you've joined us here on Christmas Eve. And again, there's a 4 p.m. service. We, we hope you'll come back for that. If you call Indian Hills your church home, and if you've been with us throughout the month of December, what I'm about to share with you is really going to be a refresher. We're in the middle of this series titled Joy to the World, and we started this series a few weeks ago on the first Sunday morning in December, and the series will conclude at our 4 p.m. service today. But in this series, we've been exploring the biblical concept of joy, and we've been doing so through several different passages in the scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that indicate and and illustrate for us what true joy is as defined by God in his word as compared to the various cheap substitutes for joy that are offered out there in the world. In the first sermon in the series, which was titled Star for Joy, we went over to Titus 3.3, and we saw what God's word says about the total lack of joy that's experienced by those who lack a relationship with the Lord. Titus 3.3 says that for those who lack that relationship with the Lord, uh, they are foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending their life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Then in the second sermon, we went over to the Old Testament. That sermon was titled Seeking for Joy, and we went to the book of Ecclesiastes, written in human terms by Solomon. And we went to chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, where we saw that Solomon, like all of us at some point in our lives, was on this journey for joy. But like us, he was on this journey for joy that was looking for joy in all the wrong places. And things like play and possessions and passions. Now after those first two sermons, I know there are at least some of you who were were physically scratching your head as I was declaring these Christmas sermons. And you were wondering, what does this have to do with Christmas? I don't think I satisfied your concerns last Sunday. Because last Sunday I took you over to 1 Peter. Where we saw that those who have a right standing with God and a right relationship with God, and who are in fact children of God, can and do strive for joy, and can and do experience true joy, even in the most difficult of earthly circumstances. And the verse that really popped off the page there was 1 Peter 1.8, which says that though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Well, today... On Christmas Eve, at long last, we're finally going to get into what many, or I hope all would say uniformly would declare that this is a Christmas text. Now, to be clear, I do think that each of the texts I've preached leading up to today's message is a fine Christmas text, even if it doesn't directly relate to the birth of our Lord, because it does talk about the the study of the topic of biblical joy. But the text that we're going to be in this morning will register with all of us in a special way here on Christmas Eve, as it is a direct account written through the pen of Luke about the birth of our Lord, at least the events leading up 
to the birth of our Lord. So with all that as preview, turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Now, a little Bible trivia for you here this morning. There are actually only three chapters in the entire Bible in terms of the total number of verses they contain that are longer than Luke chapter 1. One of those would be Psalm 119, which I guess you could say in the context of the Psalter would be a chapter, and it has 176 verses. Coming in at number 2 would be Numbers chapter 7, which has 89 verses. Coming in at number 3 would be First Chronicles 6, which has 81 verses. And then we have here Luke 1, number 4, with 80 verses. Now, believe it or not, we are going to go through all 80 verses here this morning. I mean that. I'm not holding anything behind my back. We are going through 80 verses. And if you don't believe that, guess what? We're actually going to go through the first 14 verses of chapter 2 as well. Now, my computer-like mind tells me that 80 plus 14 equals 94, meaning we're going to go through 94 verses this morning. Do you think we can do it? We'll see. We might need to finish at the 4 p.m. service today. In all seriousness, though, we really are going to get through 94 verses, at least in summary form, in summary fashion, as we pick out from these verses what they say about joy and where true joy comes from and how God supplied us with true joy through the sending and the birth of his son. As you've heard me mention before, I do plan uh, to launch our church into a comprehensive study of the gospel of Luke sometime in 2024. And I can't tell you how many years that will take us, but I will say years. But today, we're just going to zero in, in light of the time of year that we're in, and what we're celebrating right now, on what these passages, these verses say about joy, and how we as Christians have been supplied with true joy. Now, for the sake of time, to meet this goal of getting through 94 verses, I'm not going to read all 94 verses on the front end, but instead I'll read the passage as we work through the text progressively, as we make our way through it. So if you're a note-taker here here this morning, we have seven points, all duly alliterated. We're going to start with joy in fruition, joy in fruition. Look at the first four verses of Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. God's word reads... Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now that word that we're going to be coming back to today, joy, Rejoicing is mentioned several times in Luke chapter 1 and 2 in connection with the birth of our Lord. And in verses 1 through 4 here, Luke is on the doorstep, you could say, of all that he is about to lay out concerning the events leading up to the virgin birth of Christ. Now, now Luke, we know, was a medical doctor. And we also know he was a trusted and reliable ministry aide. And in the Gospel of Luke, and also in the book of Acts, which Luke was the human author of, we see that Luke was a meticulous historian. I mean, look how careful and thorough his language is here in these first four verses. He speaks, first of all, verse 1, of compiling an account, meaning he was a diligent researcher. Then he says, well, what is he compiling? Well, he's compiling all those things accomplished among us. In other words, the various deeds and miracles Jesus performed during his earthly ministry, which served to verify that he truly was the son of God sent by God the Father here to earth. And as we work our way through these next few verses, we see just how meticulous 
Luke was in his historical research and his data gathering. In verse 2, Luke establishes the chain of custody, you could say, between those who are eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry and to himself, to Luke, as he assembled and culled and put all this data together. It says they were handed down to us, verse 2, by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And then in verse 3, Luke not only gives us the addressee of his letter, a man named Theophilus, which means one who loves God or one who is the friend of God, but we see here, again, the great care with which Luke approached his task here. He speaks here, verse 3, of having investigated everything carefully from the beginning and then needing to, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Luke, in other words, was the opposite of the haphazard historian or the the sloppy journalist or the inconsistent chronicler. Now, he was meticulous, he was scrupulous, and he was thorough. And most importantly, for our purposes, he was spirit-directed, as it was the Holy Spirit who ultimately directed and guided all that he wanted Luke to write. That's 2 Peter 1.21. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And last for this section here in verse four, we see how doggedly committed Luke was to getting the truth on the printed page. He wanted Theophilus, his immediate recipient, to know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And one of those things that Theophilus had been taught is the theme we're focusing on here on Christmas Eve, which is the joy that the birth of Jesus brought. First, to all the various parties and players involved here in chapters one and two of the gospel of Luke, but also by extension to me and to you and to anybody who has put their faith in the Son of God. And these introductory words of the Gospel of Luke, then, we see joy in fruition. As Luke here previews the why of why he wrote this account, which includes the revealing of joy having come into the world. All right, next we're going to see, if you're a note taker, point two would be joy in faltering. Joy and faltering. So joy and fruition, point one. Joy and faltering, point two. Now what Luke is giving us here in this very, very long chapter one is a number of of different scenes. You're gonna see that as we work through this this morning. And again, I'm not gonna take us through every single intricate detail of each of these scenes, but I will hit some of the highlights as we continue to drill down on this theme of joy. So joy and faltering. Verses five through 25 is the next section. The camera, if we're talking about this in theatric terms, or if we put it in visual terms now, pans to Zacharias and Elizabeth. First, picking up in verse 5, we see that Zacharias was a priest of the division of Abijah. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he was married to Elizabeth, it says, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And as we're about to get into, these were the people who would eventually become the parents of John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And both came from a priestly line. We know that Zacharias, it says here, came from the line of Abijah. And Elizabeth came from the line of of Aaron. John the Baptist then was of dual priestly lines. He had priestly lines in in his blood from both sides, meaning he was destined eventually to become a priest of, of some sort. Now, the timestamp that Luke gives us for this first scene is given to us right at the beginning of verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Those days would be somewhere in the range of 
BC 37 to BC 4. That's the general timestamp of what's being described here. Now, picking up the narrative again, after mentioning their lineage, look at the first few words here that Luke gives us about Zacharias and Elizabeth. Verse 6, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. In other words, Zacharias and Elizabeth were godly people. They were God-fearers. They, they had their heads on straight, spiritually speaking. These would be the type of people that you'd assume God would bless and provide for and give them whatever they wanted. They honored God and they feared God and they rep- represented God well. So naturally, he would have given them all that their heart desired, right? Look at verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. So like Sarah and like Rebecca and like Rachel and like Hannah before her, Elizabeth experienced the sting and the disappointment and the heartbreak and even the embarrassment of childlessness, a condition and a plight which was viewed with some degree of disapproval in these days. In fact, later in verse 25, as we'll get to in a second, Elizabeth would refer to her barrenness as my disgrace among men. So we turn to verses 8 through 10, the narrative shifts again. We see that Zacharias, the priest, was on duty on one specific day. And he's carrying out his priestly office here and doing his priestly duties. Look at verse 8. It says, Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. Now, at this time in Israel's history, uh, Zacharias would have been a part of a a rotating division of labor among 24 groups of priests, uh, 24 lines of priests. And and each group of priests, each line of priests, they would be on duty twice a year for one week at a time. And Zacharias' division, we've already seen, was that of Abijah. And his division, that of Abijah, was up on this particular week. And the text tells us that he, specifically Zacharias, was chosen by lot to be the priest from his division who actually got to go into the temple and to burn incense on that specific day in the temple. And that is not, by the way, an insignificant fact. In fact, because of how many priests there were in each division, including how many priests there would have been in the division of Abijah, it is very likely that this would have been the only opportunity in Zacharias's long life that he would ever have this opportunity to, to offer up incense in the temple. Meaning this was no chance encounter. This was no a luck of the draw sort of situation. There is no such thing as chance or luck. We can talk about that later. No, this is God sovereignly working to place the man that he wanted, Zacharias, inside the temple, the place that he wanted, so that he could deliver to this man the history-altering news that he was about to share with him. And verse 10 tells us, as Zacharias is going through all this, he's in the temple now, he's going there to offer incense that there's this whole multitude, verse 10, of the people in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. That's a a customary practice at this time, the people gathering to pray. This was their, their version of Spurgeon's boiler room many centuries later, praying for what was happening inside the temple. And then at that moment, in the midst of this once in a lifetime opportunity for Zacharias, with the prayers of the people being lifted up for him at this very hour, something remarkable happened. Look at verse 11. It says, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him, 
standing to the right of the altar of incense. So the scene here is Zacharias is now in the temple, praying by the altar of incense, carrying out his priestly duties, people praying for him outside, and then suddenly this angel of the Lord appears to him and stands before him. And of course, that's right when Zechariah slaps the angel a high five, right? Pinches that little cute angel on the cheek. No, look at verse 12. It says, Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. Similar to the prophet Isaiah, when he saw the Lord in that heavenly throne room scene in Isaiah chapter six, where he saw the Lord, but also he saw the seraphim, the burning ones, that class of angels in the heavenly throne room. And he says, woe is me for I am ruined. That's what Zacharias experienced in some degree here when he first saw this angel. His reaction was out of fear. He was troubled. There was something so dazzling and glorious about this angel's appearance that that Zacharias was left fearful and trembling. And the angel we see sensed Zacharias's fear. He responds to him this way in verse 13. says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias. For your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. Now there's no mention of this earlier in Luke's narrative, but, but apparently Zacharias and Elizabeth have been, like, like many couples who struggle with infertility, praying, praying for a child. And here the angel says, your petition has been heard. But not only that, the angel said that Elizabeth would bear him a son and and that he, Zacharias, was to name that son John. And then the angel goes on to list out these various traits and characteristics that this future yet born son would be known by. And we have to think about how remarkable this news must have been for Zacharias to take in at this time. Not only that he and Elizabeth in their old age were going to have a child, but it gets more specific. They were going to have a son. And then it gets more specific that they were going to have a son that they were to name John. And then it gets more specific as we see reading on in verses 14 and following because the angel lists all these traits and characteristics of who this son later named John would have. First, verse 14, the angel said to Zacharias, you will have joy and gladness. That's an expression that means your future son will be a great source of joy and gladness to you, Zacharias and Elizabeth. He's not going to be a troublemaker. He's not going to be a problem child. He will bring you gladness and joy. Next, verse 14 says, and many will rejoice at his birth. Why? Well, because as we're going to see developed a little further later, he was going to be the forerunner to the arrival of the promised Messiah. The description continues on in verse 15. It says, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord meaning he will be used greatly. He will be used for great purposes in his role as the forerunner to the Messiah. And not only that, verse 15, he will drink no wine or liquor. Now we know that abstaining from wine or liquor was a component of those who took the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter six. Entire forests have been felled over the question of whether John was or could have been a Nazarite. We're not gonna go into that here The real emphasis here is that he was specially set apart as a prophet by God. And part of his being set apart as a prophet by God was realizing the urgency of the message he had been given to to proclaim and the unwavering focus that he was to give that message. Next, we see at the end of verse 15, these words, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. 
Not only was he going to be woven and knitted together in his mother's womb physically, Psalm 139.13, he was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even in utero, which explains why we're going to see a few moments later why he leapt in his mother's womb, Elizabeth's womb, when she encountered Mary after Mary's own encounter with this angel. Two more traits of this coming child, John, that we see in verses 16 and 17. First, verse 16 says, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord, their God. And we know as we get into the gospel accounts, like Matthew chapter three or Mark chapter one, that John did in fact go about preaching a message of repentance and salvation and forgiveness of sins as that voice crying in the wilderness. And then we see this trait in verse 17. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make it ready a people prepared for the Lord. Again, John was going to be the Messiah's forerunner. In Malachi chapter four, verses five and six, the very last two verses of the Old Testament, Elijah's return had been promised before the future coming day of the Lord to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. Well, the angel here, and Zacharias knew that this was happening, is saying he's appropriating this language to apply to John. So to catch us up, Zacharias is there in the temple. He's been chosen by Lot to burn incense in the temple. This is literally for Zacharias, this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And this angel appears to him and gives him this this overwhelming deluge of, of information. And then in verse 18 now, Luke captures Zacharias's reply to the angel. Look at verse 18. It says, Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now the man's doubt is just dripping off the page here. Though it's not really said explicitly, it's almost as though Zacharias in this moment believed that there were some things which were in fact too difficult for God. Well, the angel answered Zacharias, not only by identifying himself and identifying his mission, but we're gonna see now, he actually gives Zacharias this mild rebuke for doubting. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Zacharias, in other words, was rendered mute. He couldn't speak. Now this wasn't merely a mild rebuke for doubt. It wasn't only punishment for his unbelief. It says right here in the text that this was to be a sign. And the angel here told Zacharias what the sign would be. The sign would be that he would now be unable to speak. He would be mute. His tongue would be tied. And Zacharias's inability to speak would not be a mere matter of private embarrassment. It was about to become a very public matter because there was this crowd outside waiting to see what was going on and what had taken Zacharias so long. Look at verse 21. It says, the people, the crowd, the other Israelites were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. And verse 22 says, but when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. 
So just as the angel Gabriel had said would happen, Zacharias wasn't able to speak. He was mute, which again was a sign that he and Elizabeth really would be blessed with the child that the angel said they would be blessed with. And when we think about it, this must have been quite the odd scene for these people that are gathering around here in verses 21 and 22. They want to hear from Zacharias. What was this like? What was it like to go into the temple? And what was it like to offer incense? And what was this vision you received? But he comes out and he can't talk. He's physically unable to share with them. He's mute. Continuing on in verse 23, it says, when the days of his priestly service were ended, meaning when his his week was up, it says he went back home. That would be back to the hill country of Judea where he was from. And then look what happened in verses 24 and 25. It says, after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me. In the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. So just as the angel had proclaimed to Zacharias in the temple, what would happen? Elizabeth, his aged wife, became pregnant. And the forerunner to the Messiah, John the Baptist, was on the way. Now again, we are simply surveying this this massive chapter of, of Luke's gospel here this morning in the context of this Joy to the World series. And I don't want us to lose sight as we get ready to move on of what's said back in verse 14. Turn over to verse 14 if it's on a different page for you. It says, speaking of, this is speaking of the birth of John the Baptist where the angel Gabriel says, many will rejoice at his birth. Many will rejoice at his birth. Why? Why would many rejoice at the birth of John the Baptist? Well, the many would do so because they would have had some degree of understanding of, of who he was and, and what was going on and what the Lord had appointed his birth for. The many would realize that John's birth prefaced the birth of the coming Messiah of Israel, the long-promised Savior of God's people. So though Zacharias here faltered by doubting the angel Gabriel, and ultimately by doubting the angel Gabriel, doubting God, God nevertheless was going to bring joy to his people, first through the birth of John the Baptist, and ultimately through the birth of Jesus Christ. All right, as we turn now to verse 26, Again, the camera shifts again. New scene, new setting, new people. Away from Zacharias and Elizabeth now to this young, likely teenage girl named Mary and and by extension to Joseph. And in this next scene in the narrative, which is gonna take us all the way down to verse 45, we're gonna see, if you're a note taker, joy in favor. Joy in favor. We'll take this line by line, verse by verse, and see what these verses say about joy. Let's start in verse 26. It says, now in the sixth month, and by the way, that's not the month of June. That's not the sixth month on the Jewish calendar. That's referring instead to Elizabeth's sixth month of pregnancy. Earlier in verse 24, it mentions that Elizabeth, who had been in seclusion for five months, now we're moving into month six. The narrative is simply marching forward. And then we see these words, verse 26. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. So Gabriel is now sent by God to Nazareth, this obscure little town 70 miles north of Jerusalem, this place of lowly reputation, this place that Nathaniel later in John 146 will say with exasperation, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And God sent the angel Gabriel, we see in verse 27, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, 
This engagement, this betrothal between Joseph and Mary would have created much stronger ties than the way that we think about engagement today. Mary and Joseph would have, though not yet married, by this point already be considered to be husband and wife. The only thing left for them to do was consummate their marriage once they were formally wed. Well, this angel here throws a wrench into whatever plans Mary had thought of as she prepared to become Joseph's wife. The angel begins by greeting her in verse 28 and says, it says, in coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And we see that Mary's initially taken aback by the angel's greeting. Look at verse 29. It says, but she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel picks up on her perplexed reaction in verse 30. It says, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. By the way, back in verse 28, where that initial greeting, it says, greetings favored one. Literally in the original, the language there signifies one who is full of grace, which is a statement that's true of all believers. In fact, that same language is used over in Ephesians 1.6, where it speaks of the grace that's been freely bestowed on every one of us as Christians. That's the sense in which Mary was a favored one, in the very sense that you and I, if we've trusted in Christ, are favored ones. Mary was not and is not a dispenser of grace, a dispenser of divine grace, as the Roman Catholic Church would have you believe and have you chant, Hail Mary, full of grace. No, Mary was a recipient of divine grace, just like you and me. God's grace had been bestowed on her, just like it has been for you and me. Next comes the part of this account that everyone here has heard of at some point. Look at verse 31. The angel continues, and and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. So the angel started by telling Mary not to fear, as he did with Zacharias. The angel told Mary that she would bear a son, as he did with Zacharias relating to Elizabeth. He told her what to name her son, as he did with Zacharias. Then verses 32 and 33 The angel gives more details to Mary about who her son would become, as he did in a similar way with Zacharias. First part of verse 32, it says, he will be great. That's the same thing the angel said to Zacharias about John the Baptist. But it's the next words that really set Mary's forthcoming son apart. First, still in verse 32, it says, he will be called the son of the most high. Now, in this time and in this culture, sons were viewed as bearing their father's qualities. So to call a person someone else's son was a way of signifying equality. Meaning Gabriel here is telling Mary that her son would be equal to the most high God. He wouldn't be like God. He wouldn't be a sort of God. He wouldn't resemble God. He himself would be God in flesh. Colossians 2.9 affirms that later, in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Next we see at the end of verse 32 that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Uh, we know that Mary was of the line of David and, and her son would be David's physical descendant through her. Not only that, David's throne symbolized the role that her son would eventually play in his future messianic kingdom. Next, verse 33, the angel says he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. 
her son would one day rule over Israel as her king, a, a period that we now know as the millennium, which will continue on into the eternal state. And last, still in verse 33, we're given this description, and his kingdom will have no end. Those words would have taken Mary back to the promise of, of Yahweh to David through the words of the Davidic covenant, where God promised a Messiah whose rule would have no end. Second Samuel 7, verse 16 says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, as we continue on, like Zacharias, Mary had a question for the angel in light of this news. Uh, Look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Now, unlike Zacharias, Mary apparently wasn't asking this question out of doubt because there's no penalty attached like muteness, to her asking this question. Rather, she seems to have been asking this question out of genuine curiosity. In other words, Mary wasn't doubting God's words that that the things that he had pronounced that would be accomplished through her would actually come to pass. She was rather wondering how these events would come to pass. And she, as she mentions here in verse 34, is a virgin. Well, the angel gives her her answer in verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. The answer then was not that Mary was going to, with Joseph, cross over any culturally impermissible boundaries or barriers before they were officially wed. The answer rather was that the Holy Spirit was going to bring about the physical conception of Jesus as was predicted all the way back in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. The Messiah would be virgin conceived and and virgin born, conceived by the Holy Spirit, allowing him to be both God incarnate and a sinless savior and substitute. Born in flesh, but not polluted in any way by sin. Well, with that question answered, The angel Gabriel continued on with his explanation to Mary, saying this in verse 36. He says, And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. Now that reference there to Elizabeth being Mary's relative is an interesting one. The likely point of connection is that they were both descendants of Aaron. They both came out of the Aaronic line, and probably through Mary's mother. Well, having told Mary all of these things, the angel puts the exclamation point on all he's shared with her to this point in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. A line here that has been appropriated by countless students as they pray for final exams and and countless Christmas travelers as they're stranded on the side of the road and and countless mothers as they pray for their wayward children, for, for nothing will be impossible with God. It traces all the way back to this context of the angel Gabriel telling Mary that she would bear the son of God in her womb. And look at Mary's response, verse 38. And Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. In other words, she willingly submitted herself to God's plan, knowing that this was going to lead to a very long conversation with Joseph at some point, and knowing that this could lead to estrangement from her family and and, and, and awkward looks from her community. She nevertheless called herself the Lord's bond slave. 
And she wanted to do what had been declared to her through the lips of this angel, according to your word, meaning according to the the word of God coming through the lips of that angel. And it says, after having received Mary's humble and faithful response here into verse 39, the angel departed from her. And as we keep working through this, we see that once the angel departed from her, uh, Mary then left and she departed to, from where Gabriel had encountered her, to go see Elizabeth. Look at verses 39 and 40. It says, Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And she was a welcome guest, according to verse 41. It says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now the period of time that that Luke is writing uh, these words is still that pre-church age period, that period before Pentecost, before Acts chapter 2, when, when the Holy Spirit fell on the believing church. So here, when Luke says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, I take that to mean he is saying that she was guided by the Spirit. She was led by the Spirit. She was controlled by the Spirit right in the, in the circumstance. In fact, it would have been the Holy Spirit who would have guided her and led her, led Elizabeth to say what she says in these next few verses, starting in verse 42. It says, And she, that's Elizabeth, cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. It was the Holy Spirit who guided Elizabeth to refer to Mary there in verse 42 as blessed and honored among women. It was the Holy Spirit who led Elizabeth to acknowledge that Mary, though her junior, was the mother of my Lord, she says in verse 43. It was the Holy Spirit who caused the infant John in Elizabeth's womb to leap, which is in fulfillment of what Gabriel had said back in verse 15. And it was the Holy Spirit who caused Elizabeth to recognize, as she does in verse 45, that Mary would be blessed for her believing, for her faith, that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. So, as we see here in Mary's interactions with the angel Gabriel, and then in her later interactions with Elizabeth, she was the favored one. But she was not only the favored one, she was the faithful one, which we see picked up in the next part of the narrative, verses 46 through 56. If you're taking notes, the heading here is joy in faith. Joy in faith. Uh, These 11 verses, 46 through 56, are known as Mary's Magnificat. And what they represent is this this burst of praise from the the earthly mother of our Lord, in, in which she is praising God both for his blessing upon her personally, but also upon Israel Corporately, she starts by praising God for the the personal favor he's shown her. She she refers, verse 48, to her own humble state. Uh, She refers to herself as the blessed one in in that same verse. Uh, Verse 49, she notes that the mighty one has done great things for me. And of course, back in verse 47, a verse that the Roman Catholic Church has always had a problem explaining away since they view Mary as herself having been immaculately conceived and herself having lived a sinless life, are these words, verse 47. And my spirit has rejoiced 
in God my Savior. See, Mary did not view herself as sinless. Mary did not see herself as this co-mediatrix between God and sinful man. Mary certainly didn't see herself, as the Catholic Church would say today, as the queen of heaven. No, she recognized that she was a sinner. She affirmed her need for a savior. And knowing that she had such a savior caused her to do what? Verse 47 tells us, look at the verb there. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my savior. And then in the rest of her Magnificat, she praises God for his favor on Israel as a people. What we see in the verses following are really just a collection of various different Old Testament quotations and allusions. Verse 50, his mercies upon generation after generation. Verse 51, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. Verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. Verse 54, he has given help to Israel, his servant. And verse 55, he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And then we're given this little bit of narrative at the end of this section, verse 56, it says, and Mary stayed with her about three months. Apparently that means until the time it came for Elizabeth to give birth to John. And it says, then she returned home. Okay, so we've seen that through The angel Gabriel's words to Zacharias back in verse 14 that many would rejoice at the birth of John the Baptist. We've seen how John the Baptist in utero leapt in the womb of Elizabeth when Mary came to share her good news with her relative. We've seen how Mary in her Magnificat rejoiced in God her Savior. We've seen how Mary is an example of joy in favor and and joy in faith. Now as we turn to the next section of the narrative in verses 57 through 66, we see joy come in from another angle. We see joy in forerunning. Joy in forerunning, verses 57 through 66. Starting off in verse 57, we get this very straightforward account, simple account of the birth of John the Baptist. It says, now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. And then turning to verse 58, look at what John's birth produced. It produces joy. Uh, just as we saw predicted earlier in Gabriel's announcement to Zacharias. Look at verse 58. It says, her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. They were rejoicing with her because it was known, certainly by now, that, that in Elizabeth's and Zacharias' immediate circle, that their son, John, was going to pave the way for the coming Messiah. And as we continue on in this narrative, note what these elderly first-time parents, look at at what the reaction is, as their their son is born. It's not just general giddiness, it's obedience. Verse 59, it happened that on that eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. So they they followed along with what it says in Genesis 17 and, and Leviticus 12. When a son was born, he was to be circumcised on his eighth day of life. And also, as it was customary for any good Israelite at this time, they, they named the child at the time of the circumcision of their son. That's what we see happening here in verse 59, where it says they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. That's simply reflecting the expectation culturally that he would be named after his father. If, if father is Zacharias, son was Zacharias Jr. That was the expectation. That was the cultural norm. But look at verse 60. But his mother answered and said, no, indeed. But he shall be called 
John. And her statements met with some resistance. Those who were around her, it says, they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. We don't have a John in this family. And then they, not only that, they seek to bypass Elizabeth in verse 62 and go straight to Zacharias. They made signs to his father. So they apparently thought he was not only mute, but deaf. And as to what they wanted him called. And Zacharias gave his answer in verse 63. It says, he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows. His name is John. And they were all astonished. At this point, Zacharias's tongue is freed up. Look at verse 64. Having followed the instruction of the angel Gabriel by naming his newborn son John, it says, verse 64, his mouth was open, his tongue was loosed. And note at the end of verse 64, the first thing this new father did once he regained the ability to speak was to joyfully speak in praise of God. In verse 65 and 66, again, the camera again sort of widens. The angle zooms out beyond Zacharias's and, and Elizabeth's immediate circle of influence to those who were more broadly looking from the outside in on all that had transpired. Look at verses 65 and 66. Fear came on all those who lived around them and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind saying, what then will this child turn out to be? There was questioning. There was confusion. There was concern especially among those who did not fear the Lord. And why? Well, we see the answer at the end of verse 66. Speaking of John the Baptist, it says, for the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. Okay, we've seen joy in fruition, verses one through four. We've seen joy in faltering, verses five through 25. We've seen joy in favor, verses 26 through 45. We've seen joy in faith, Verses 46 through 56. We've seen joy in forerunning. Verses 57 through 66. Now in this final part of Luke 1. Verses 67 through 80. We're going to see joy in fulfillment. Joy in fulfillment. Mary's words. Back in verse 46 I mentioned. Are known as the Magnificat. Zacharias's words in various circles. In the remaining part of Luke 1 here. Are known as the Benedictus a Latin term which simply means blessed. It's picked up from the first word of verse 68 here where it says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. But this section starts with verse 67, which notes that Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit. Like Elizabeth earlier, this simply means that he was moved by the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit, directed by the Holy Spirit. And then from verses 68 through 79 Zacharias gives this inspired benediction, these words of praise for what God had accomplished, not only through the birth of Zacharias' son, John, but for God's broader redemptive purposes that were about to unfold. He says, verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. In other words, praise be to the Lord God of Israel. And why? For, For he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And how has he done that? Well, he he answers it in verses 69 through 75. And and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him All our days. What 
Zacharias is describing here is the future deliverance of Israel that was going to be accomplished through her Messiah. The Messiah would be the nation's horn of salvation, as it says here in verse 69. And that's just a a term to mean the nation's source of salvation. Like it says in in Psalm 18, 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn, the source of my salvation. The Messiah, verse 69, would, would come from the house of David or come through the house of David. The Messiah, verse 70, had been spoken of by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. The Messiah, verse 71, would one day bring physical deliverance to Israel, salvation from our enemies and from the the hand of all who hate us. The Messiah, verse 72, would show mercy toward our fathers. It's through the Messiah, verses 72 and 73, that God would remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. And it was through the Messiah, verses 74 and 75, that the people of Israel would be able to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, Zacharias knew that his son, John, was not himself going to be this Messiah, but rather the precursor to, the the forerunner to the Messiah. And and we know this because Zacharias' understanding of these realities is, is so clear in the next few verses Verses 76 through 79, where it says, And you, child, he's speaking to John there, or of John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." So he's addressing his child here, John. And when he says in verse 76, and you child will be called the prophet of the most high. John would be a prophet, a prophet of the most high in the spirit of Elijah as we saw earlier. And not only that, as we see quite clearly at the end of verse 76, he would pave the way for the Lord. It says you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. And he, John, was to proclaim a message, verse 77, of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, which is exactly what we see John doing later in the gospel accounts, like in Luke 3, 3, where it says he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This message that John would later go on to proclaim was rooted, verse 78, in the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise, or as other translations have it, the day spring, which is a reference to the Messiah, from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. And those words, to shine upon those who sit in darkness, those correlate real nicely to what we see in Matthew's gospel, specifically Matthew 4, 16, which in turn alludes to Isaiah chapter nine, where it says the people who were sitting in darkness have now seen a great light. And then here at the end of verse 79, the one who was coming, the one of whom John was a forerunner, was to guide our feet into the way of peace, it says, which we know the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, actually came to do and actually will do in a complete way when he comes again. Last verse 80 says, And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. 
And that child, again, was John the Baptist. It was he who grew and he who became strong and, and he who lived in the desert and he who we see in other gospel accounts ate locusts and wild honey until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And there we go. We've made it through 80 verses. Just what you came here for today, right? To hear 80 verses culminating in the account of the birth of John the Baptist. That's where we're going to end this, right? No. We didn't come here to celebrate John the Baptist this morning. He played a role, he played a part, and he's a critical forerunner, of course. But we're not here to celebrate John the Baptist at Christmas. We have seen that he played this instrumental role, and he played the supporting role, this preparatory role, this forerunning role, but the story continues. Chapter verses weren't introduced until, the, I think, the 1200s by a man named Stephen Langton. So let's read on into chapter 2. I told you, we're going to do all 94. If you're a note taker here this morning, this is our last heading. This would be joy in full. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened." But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Why is it that the follower of Christ is no longer joy-starved? Why is it that the follower of Christ is no longer on this never-ending hamster wheel in the pursuit of so-called happiness? Why is it that the follower of Christ can greatly rejoice, as we see over in 1 Peter 1.8, with, with joy inexpressible and full of glory, even in the most difficult and trying of circumstances? Answer, we've been supplied with joy in the form of this infant who lied there in the manger, who as he nursed from the woman whom he himself created, was at the very same time upholding the earth and the, the planets and the galaxies by the very word of his power. We've been supplied with joy in the form of a sinless savior, a spotless lamb who ultimately was born to die for unworthy sinners like you and me as a marvelous act of grace and mercy and love. We've been supplied with joy in the form of our death-conquering, sin-defeated, sin-defeating, resurrected Lord who came for us once and is coming again. 
we cannot extract joy from this world in the ultimate sense. We cannot have every possible itch scratched and need met and happiness found by what's offered out here in the world. We can't get joy from the world, but we can absolutely experience joy in the world because of who was sent in the world on our behalf. And if you're here this morning and and just visiting for, for Christmas Eve, I'm so glad you're here because I want to make very clear that simply coming to a church service and and singing Christmas hymns and Christmas carols, even singing the words joy to the world does not a Christian make and it does not a soul save. If you're here this morning and whether you are not a believer of your own accord because you're kicking against the goads and you're rebelling against the God who made you in his image or you're not a believer because you think you are but you're deceived and Satan has pulled the wool over your eyes, I want to make very clear that you know and that you don't leave this place before you know that the only way that you will ever be made right with a holy God, the only way that you'll be made right and have your sins forgiven by a holy God will not be to sing songs, will not be to attend church, will not be to to read your Bible, will not be to pray, will not be to call yourself a Christian, but instead is to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God sent his son into the world. The the incarnation started the mission. The mission concluded at the cross. And the only way that a person like you or me, dead in our sin, convicted by our sin, given over to our sin, will ever be forgiven by a holy God, will ever have eternal life granted, will ever have our sin forgiven, is if we put our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So please, please hear me. If you don't know Christ this morning, I pray that you would humble yourself before God. I pray that you would understand that you, like me, like all of us, are a sinful wretch. That you could be a lot worse than you are. Praise God that you're not, but you're dead in your sin. And that the only solution for man's sinful nature and man's sin problem is to believe upon the name of Jesus Christ. I would be happy to talk with you further. What I'm saying to you, I'm saying as an act of pure love, knowing this may be the only time I get to say this to you, but I'd be happy to share with you more out in the lobby after the service and pray with you and work with you so that you could embrace what it truly means to know God through Christ. Merry Christmas, everyone. May the joy of the Lord be with you all. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for the beautiful narrative that we've seen laid out here in Luke chapter one and part of Luke chapter two concerning all the events leading up to the birth of the Lord, the birth of our savior, Jesus Christ. I do pray that this would be a season for those of us who know Christ that would be joyful a season in which we would rejoice in the many blessings we have, not material blessings, but the the blessing of salvation, knowing that we know you and knowing that our eternity is secure. God, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, as we've just described, I do pray that this would be a day that they would humble themselves and bow the knee to Jesus Christ and receive the greatest gift that's ever been offered or given, that of salvation through Christ. We love you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.